Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism proxies and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Alison McCullough. Alison is Associate Professor in Political Science at Brandon University. She's also Editor-in-Chief of Nationalism and Ethnic Politics. She's written extensively on the politics of ethnically divided societies, peace processes, and democratization in post-conflict states. She's done that relating to the Middle East, but also in, in um, non-MENA contexts. So I'm really looking forward to talking with her today. Alison, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, we were supposed to be at a workshop together in Beirut a few months ago, but unfortunately um, the stars didn't align. So, so I missed the chance to talk to you about your work, which is absolutely fascinating. So I'm pleased that we got a chance to do it today. Yes, it's, uh, it would have been much nicer to do this uh, in, in Beirut, but uh, happy, happy we can have the conversation. Yes, well, I'm sure there'll be another time. So, yes. Alison, I normally start with a question as to as to what prompted your interest in, in the Middle East. But I guess in your case, it's, it's slightly broader. Uh, what prompted your interest in, in working on divided societies and academia? So that's a big question. But I think so for me, much of my research focuses on power sharing and uh, specifically on consociationalism. So I'm really interested in the design of political institutions. So um, that has led me to various parts of the world where um, different kinds of power sharing arrangements um, have been implemented. So in addition to sorry, uh, a growing interest in, in the MENA region and in Lebanon in particular, um, a lot of my work has focused on Northern Ireland uh, and Bosnia in this regard. So trying to figure out um, what are the ways in which political institutions can be designed to help support democracy and stability and, and sort of um, a system that is more broadly inclusive than a sort of majoritarian system might be. Sure. Okay. So where did that interest come from then? I mean, was this something that you knew you, you always had a burning desire to explore or was it prompted by a particular event? Can you, can you remember? Um, I think it was sort of gradual. I, certainly a lot of it was sparked by, I became friends with um, some people who had moved to Canada from Bosnia during the war and um, actually living with them at, at, at a point in time and just um, hearing their experiences and, and thinking about um, the consequences of war sort of prompted an interest. And then it just sort of, as I went through my um, undergraduate and later on graduate um, career, sort of kept me going back down that particular path. And then when I got, I did my PhD at Queen's University in Canada, um, and I was working with, with John McGarry as my supervisor. Um, so a focus on consociationalism, um, which would have, you know, is one of the major um has been the major strategy for uh, Bosnia since the war. Um, and then in conversation with him, starting to look at Northern Ireland and then sort of growing from there. Fantastic. What was your, your undergraduate degree in? Uh, political science. So I've been political science the whole, the whole way through. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. So there's a, a nice common thread running through what you've been doing. I think so, yes, yeah. And then aside from... From that then, was it a case that you always wanted to go into academia or, or was your intellectual curiosity sparked during this time and in these conversations with yeah. uh, friends from Bosnia? 
And so I didn't, I, I mean, I didn't even understand that academia was an option for me really um, growing up. And I sort of, um, I had originally um, gone to school thinking that I wanted to be a high school teacher, um, maybe English or, or history, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, took some political science courses because I had sort of, had done some sort of, you know, quite a bit of, um, you know, some feminist activism in my high school and early undergrad uh, days as well. Um, and it was really my undergraduate professors who were like, you know, you should be considering grad school. And it hadn't even occurred to me. And it, if it wasn't for those mentors, I wouldn't have followed this path. Amazing. Yeah. That, so that's, that's one of the benefits, I think. So I went to a small liberal arts college um, in right. my hometown in Ontario, um, so where you got the chance to know your professors. And that's the kind of experience I now have teaching at a small liberal arts um, college in, in Manitoba. And that ability to know your students and have them support you through and open up new things that hadn't even occurred to you, I think, is uh, one of the perks of this job. Yeah, definitely. I think it's it's such a positive thing when you can have that relationship and and those those academics can offer you that that guidance and steer you in directions you hadn't necessarily thought of. So uh, that that's exactly. wonderful. And I'm not at all surprised to hear that you're putting that in action yourself after <laughs> after going through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alison, can you tell us a bit about your your PhD then with with John McGarry, which is quite the quite the um, supervisor to have, I guess. <laughs> It's one of the well, one of the the key scholars in in power share and consociationalism generally. So, tell us a bit about what that was, what that was on, and what it was like, please. Sure. Um, so my PhD considers the um, so it compared consociationalism and centripetalism, which is sort of an integrative approach um, using things like uh, the alternative vote, um, other kinds of preferential. Um, um, ranking um, ballots and that kind of thing, um, distribution requirements for presidents. So um, that that Aaron Leipart versus Donald Horowitz debate, yeah, and I sure. I looked at um, six different countries for for the PhD um, uh, with their use of these two different kinds of systems to sort of see well are. Is, is one institutional design more likely to contribute to peace and stability um, than, than another? And what I found in particular was that it really comes down to both what the demographic situation is like in a country and how deeply divided um, the 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 groups might might be. Um, so has there been violence or not becomes a really important part for explaining whether one is more likely to be adopted than the other and whether it's more likely to contribute to peace and stability than, than the other. Um, and so John would have been the perfect supervisor for, for that project. I felt uh, very fortunate. He was a wonderful uh, mentor. Um, he was very busy at the time. So near the end of my PhD is when he um, was... Um, part of the UN mediation standby team. Um, but he was uh, sort of a great person to um, supervise this project and to um, help support me through the PhD. So it was, a, it, was a, it was a great experience. I can imagine. I'm pleased yeah. to hear, but that sounds fascinating. Could you tell us a bit then about the idea of a, of a divided society? For some people who, who don't necessarily have the, the experience working in this area, what, 
How do you understand a, a divided society? What does it mean to be divided? What types of divisions are you looking at here? Uh, so I think part of the issue of the, using the term divided society is that it often gets sort of, it, for many people, it, it means ethnically divided or um, nationally divided. And so it's those ethnic and national divisions that... Um, sort of translate into political processes, right? So that um, that there's some kind of relationship between um, people's um, identities, ethnic and national identities, and their ability to access the political system. Okay. So a lot of perhaps misconceptions around it, but there's actually some some relatively easily quantifiable divisions at play, would you say? So I think, I, I mean, certainly I think that if you look at how, particularly where you can have open uh, and regular elections, how the political party system, for example, um, forms and the kinds of parties that develop and the kinds of parties that win election is, I think, an empirical measure of um, some of the divisions that, that might be um, in society. Um, having said that, I think it's important to um, recognize that our our identities um, are not static, that there, there are um, opportunities and um, particularly political strategies that can help to um, sort of unwedge some of those um, deeper divisions. Right. Sure. Yeah. So institutions then, they obviously have a, a key role to play in in peace building and they're, they're central to, to some of the work that, that you've been doing. Could you just give us a bit of, of background in terms of, of how these things work before we go into to some of the stuff that you've been working on in more detail? For example, what, what is power sharing? What is consociationalism? Sure. Um, just so, in, in two minutes. How do you boil all of that down? Sorry, a really <laughs> tough question. but Okay. So consociationalism uh, is probably the easier one to answer because it's a bit more specific, right? So consociationalism is a type of power sharing. So there's lots of different ways you can share power. Um, so um, consociationalism, federalism, um, uh, centripetalism, there's various different ways you can do that. Uh, consociationalism is a bit more precise in that it's four different institutions adopted um, together. So the first is a kind of executive power sharing on typically understood as grand coalitions, right? Yeah. So the different parties representing the different groups in society are all um, in government together. Um, the second is a principle of proportionality, so using that for elections, um, typically a list proportional representation system, but there are other kinds, single transferable vote and so on. Um, also using that principle for resource allocation, right, so making sure that resources are allocated on a proportional basis. That might mean in the civil service, um, in the security sector, in other places uh, as well. Uh, then there's segmental autonomy or cultural autonomy um, so that the groups have some degree of um, 
self-government in place. Now, that can be through federalism, can also be through uh, cultural autonomy laws, particularly in the area of education, uh, language, and, and so on. And then there are mutual vetoes. So that's the last of the consociational uh, institutions. So again, the idea that in those shared spaces, minority groups can um, stop any legislation that might be seen as detrimental to, the, to their vital interests. So that ability to um, protect their interests um, within um, the wider uh, political decision-making process. So it's when those four institutions work together that you have a consociational uh, arrangement. The idea is that this will help to support cooperation between the groups, um, leading to peace uh, and stability so that um, you can sort of overcome some of the challenges of mistrust that might be present in a divided society through these sort of uh, interlocking institutions that, that help to um, bring the groups together um, where, where needed. Right. Can you give us some of the, the better or perhaps more successful examples of, of a consociational agreement being in operation? Well, I think that all depends on how you define successful. Um, I think that uh, it's not an easy system uh, to to work. I think that there's lots of challenges. I think anytime you bring together, um, particularly in the wake of a violent conflict, um, people together who who have, who have gone through through that that kind of conflict, it's it is very difficult to trust. It is very difficult to to find that common cause. So there can be um, a lot of challenges um, as you begin to implement the system uh, and work together. Now, the system that's often held up is Northern Ireland. Um, so you know, in the the 21 years since the Good Friday Agreement, um, there has been some periods of uh, stable government. There's also been some periods where the institutions um, have been um, suspended um, or put on hold, including most recently. So the Northern Ireland Assembly has only recently gotten um, back to work after a uh, period of suspension since 19 uh, since um, 2017. Um, so it's, it's, it's not easy, but it's also a system that if in the case of Northern Ireland, certainly um, the levels of violence have um, dropped dramatically since that period. There have been um, movement towards um, greater cooperation, um, including um, between the nationalist community and the British government and the unionist community and the Irish government, um, and so on. Likewise, I think, um, you know, in, in the case of Bosnia, while day-to-day politics is mired in a lot of challenges um, around clientelism and um, some, some obstructionism, um, I think you know, that ability to keep peace over that, that period of time is, is a really important um, aspect of the story. So uh, they're, they're tricky systems to, to govern. Um, they're sort of policies of last resort, but I think that there's still a lot that can be said for um, the, the way in which that certainly um, on an interim basis can, can support uh, peace and stability. It's interesting that you say interim because uh, <laughs> it's been what twenty-one years? Did you say yeah. since Good Friday? Yes, yeah. So that's it's an interesting definition of interim, I guess. But um, 
I guess this is one of the charges levied by someone like Donald Horowitz. That's right. So I think, I, I mean, yeah, so it, it really depends on the, the country in question. I think that um, sometimes you're able to have it in the in, for the interim and that you've got a plan for when you can move beyond it. Um, in other cases, it may not necessarily be um, easy to, to move beyond. And so one of the things I am looking at is this, how do you, how do you move beyond power sharing? So one of the, again, um, in, in Aaron Leipart's book, um, 1977 book, which is one of the sort of first comparative treatments of consociationalism. The idea there is that, you know, with enough time, you can sort of, um, you won't need the system anymore and it will be easy to move beyond it. Um, that hasn't necessarily happened. I think it is a system that um, can risk some, some entrenching itself. You know, once you've um, gotten special rights, they're hard to to give up. Um, but I think that um, taking we we need to sort of be taking a longer term view of um, how how we understand what, what interim is. And so that, um, you know, a generation isn't a long time after, um, this particular kind of conflict that it it does take time. And that if you can start to see small changes in the system, starting to open up, um, creating space for particularly those who may not necessarily identify with the leading identities that, that are accommodated in the system that, you know, a sort of a, a slow-growing approach might might be the way forward. I think that's a really interesting point, particularly in the Northern Irish context. And I guess you can say the same about, about Lebanon and elsewhere as well. But in Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. this has been a, a generational conflict, depending on, on the narrative that's put forward and, and which narrative you privilege. But to expect that there would be this, this rapid transformation of of views, perceptions, beliefs, hatreds, animosity in within one generation is perhaps slightly naive. Right, exactly. And I think what you're seeing um, is that when when the system isn't in crisis, you have that opening that's that starting, you know, that so one of the things we've seen when, when the you know when the institutions were suspended is that growth of the Alliance Party that that the, which is a uh, political party that is neither unionist nor nationalist, right? Um, has has their support has grown, and um, you know the Green Party is growing, and um, you know the People Before Profits Party is growing, and so you're starting to see um, more of a push, more of a growth towards accommodating different kinds of identities and not seeing everything just in terms of nationalist, unionist, orange and green kind of thing. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Given that you've done a lot of comparative work, are there any other examples outside of Northern Ireland where you've seen that type of, of transformation happening? Um, good question. Um, I mean... Northern Ireland is, is the key example of it, I would say. Um, I think you're seeing, I think what you're seeing in Lebanon right now since, um, you know, since October of last year is that demand for different kinds of ways of expressing um, your political identities. Um, now, whether that translates into institutional uh, change, um, I think is still an open question. But I think you're, that that 
um, you know, the, the, the revolution is a good example of the idea that there, there are different ways to participate in the political process and that, Mm. um, things, things can change. And I think, um, seeing a little bit of that in Bosnia, um, as well, um, in, in Burundi, I think you've seen a little bit of that, um, there, I think it's because the political party, so, um, under the, the power sharing constitution um, of t- uh, 2005, one of the stipulations was that parties had to be multi-ethnic. So um, every third name on the list, I think it was, had to come from um, the, the other community. Um, so that has sort of changed um, some of the different ways in which the system represents uh, different groups as well. That's fascinating. And what was the response to that? In, in the case of Burundi, yeah. um, I think that, I mean, the parties have, um, as far as I'm aware, um, have, have abided by it. Um, one of the things you have seen alongside this is the predominance of one political party. So whereas before this period you had, um, you know, a few different uh, ethnic parties competing against each other, you now really have a system that is dominated by one single party. Right. Sure. Yeah. That's sort of pushing me towards a a different line of thinking, and it speaks quite nicely to what we've been doing in the past couple of years of of SEPAD, and that's reflecting on on the position of identities within within political contexts broadly. So I wonder, to what extent do you think um, power-sharing political institutions in the type of context that you're looking at, what impact does that have on, on identities? sense, I think part of the issue is that um, it all comes down to how the system is designed. And there's one of the things I've, I've really been looking at is just how institutionally diverse consociationalism actually is. So you can have some institutions that um, might allow for greater expression of different identities um, within the political system. And then you have some consociational institutions that um, really do lock in or entrench um, the, the the dominant um, groups in society. So it really comes down to um, what the institutional rules in place are. So one of the big distinctions that gets made in power sharing theory is between liberal and corporate power sharing. So in a corporate um, consociational system, you know ahead of time that these, these named groups are the ones who are going to be represented. In a liberal system, there are sort of, it gets left to the democratic um, election process to determine who's going to fill these positions. You might have qualified majority rules and other kinds of things in place that might allow for greater um, flexibility. So it really does depend on um, what rules are in place. Some you know, will entrench um, identities, making it difficult um, to allow political space for for other views. Um, some of the other power sharing institutions uh, lend themselves to greater flexibility in that regard. Right. Okay. That's it's got me thinking through a whole host of, of issues right now, and um, yeah. I know you've done a, a lot of work on on a, a number of them pertaining to the the corporate liberal distinction. 
um, to to identities, the role of minorities within these these political systems. But I want to just pick up on one of them, if I may. And I'm conscious that that time is a ticking. But what what impact does does power sharing and and the the cultivation of these political structures have on gender? Sure. Uh, so that's a question I've been working on for some time now uh, with a colleague from the University of Alberta, Siobhan Byrne. Um, and Siobhan comes to our project from the perspective of looking at grassroots um, cross-community feminist activism. And of course, I come to it from, from the power sharing side. So it's been a fascinating project for us. Um, and I think there's a couple of things here. Um, one is that our project was motivated by a sense that these two different groups of scholars just didn't talk to each other, even if they were talking about the same kinds of places and the same kinds of issues. So trying right. to think about where some of that divide might be um, in terms of you know, the level of analysis they come at it from, as well as the locus of their analysis. And I think that... Um, Part of the issue here is that, again, it comes down to institutional diversity. So um, there's been work recently that sort of looks at, and this is work by Christine Bell, which is absolutely fascinating, that um, power sharing peace agreements are, I think it's five times more likely to have gender equality references and are seven times more likely to have gender quotas than non-power sharing peace agreements. And for us, that's a real puzzle because so much of the understanding is that it's quite difficult for women to be effectively represented um, within power sharing systems, um, at least in terms of descriptive representation. So we're actually seeing two very different uh, tracks emerge here. One that um, creates the opportunity for greater um, gender inclusion, um, at least at a formal level, whereas some of those um, sort of resilient gender stereotypes and tropes remain within the system. So it's sort of a mixed result where um, on the face of it, it looks difficult for women to gain entry, but they're actually starting to do so in greater numbers. It's once they're within the system that trying to, to navigate very gendered um, political institutions um, is, is still a problem. My take on this uh, generally is that um, politics is bad for women. Um, I, I, I don't think I've found a set of political institutions that have adequately represented um, gender um, or women's uh, interests um, to, to the full extent that they can. Um, so that if we start from that point, then it's to think about um, where are those entry points and how do women um, gain, gain entry into the system and um, facilitate not just descriptive representation, but substantive representation as well, right? right? So have outcomes that are meaningful and supportive of, of gender equality. Uh, I think a lot of systems um, struggle with that. And that's a damning conclusion, I think. <laughs> uh, deeply depressing. I know. <laughs> deeply, deeply depressing. Well, Alison, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed chatting. But before we, we let you go, would you like to say anything about your role as um, editor-in-chief of the journal? If you want to make a, a quick plug for, for submissions or anything like that, the space is yours. Well, thank Yes, please send me your submissions. Um, <laughs> yeah, so... Um, 
one of the things I really like about nationalism and ethnic politics is that as part of our mandate is to include a wider representation um, of scholarship from around the world, right? Uh, and making sure that um, early career, later career, uh, the whole way through, but also um, n not just a, a focus on um, Western or, or, or scholarship from the global north that um, we really are looking for um, submissions from from around the world. Fantastic. And, um, yeah. I think that's a really excellent cause, and I'm glad that you've you've done the little shout out. So do do check it out. Do submit things if you've got anything that that speaks to to what Alison's trying to do. But Alison, thank you so much for, for today. I've really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot as I always do with these things. Um, I'm looking forward to reading more of the, the work that you're producing, particularly around around gender and, and political systems, even though I know it's going to really frustrate me. Um, <laughs> but thank you, really enjoyed it. So thanks so much for your time. Well, thank you so much for, for inviting me. This it's is great, thank pleasure. you. Pleasure, thank you so much. And as always, thank you for listening. Until next time.